We can't be blamed. I'm sure this goes against everything you've been taught, but right and wrong do exist. Just because you don't know what the right answer is, maybe there's even no way you could know what the right answer is, doesn't make your answer right or even okay. It's much simpler than that. It's just plain wrong. I've never been a big fan of medical dramas with one notable exception. That exception came from David Shore and his Emmy-winning, critically acclaimed medical drama that ran from 2004 to 2012 on Fox. In a 2007 interview that Shore gave to Maclean's, a news outlet based in Canada, he said that he originally pitched his show concept to Fox without an idea for the central character fully formed. He was pitching what amounted to a detective drama, saying, quote, The show was sold as a crime police procedural, but instead of bad guys, the germs were the suspects, end quote. Fox liked the idea, but felt it needed to be more character-driven, so they matched Shore up with a couple of executive producers, Paul Adanasio and Katie Jacobs, to flesh the concept out further. What came out of that collaboration was a main character that was equal parts unconventional, utterly dislikable, and exceptionally brilliant. A genius diagnostician with a terrible bedside manner, one that actually hated to have any interaction with his patients whatsoever. Now, for what felt like the makings of a quintessentially American medical drama, the producers began scouting for a quintessentially American actor to play that lead role. I bet the last person they would have suspected as a perfect fit for it was an Oxford-born actor who made his name in the United Kingdom doing sketch comedy. But Hugh Laurie, who was shooting another movie at the time of auditions for David Shore's television show, was so interested in playing that flawed genius of a doctor that he made an audition tape from his hotel bathroom and sent it to the producers. Laurie fooled everyone with his American accent. In fact, David Shore remembers that a fellow producer, upon viewing Laurie's audition, said, quote, See, this is what I want, an American guy. End quote. He got the job. A few months later, production began, and Laurie's interpretation of this gifted, cynical, narcotic-dependent lead character would end up making all the difference. It's a basic truth of the human condition that everybody lies. The only variable is about what. House was an immediate hit. It was among the top 25 most watched television programs for each of its first six seasons. But what undeniably transformed this TV show from good to great was Hugh Laurie's unorthodox portrayal of Gregory House. In his eight seasons playing House, Laurie was nominated for a Golden Globe Award for Best Actor in a Lead Drama six times, making him one of only seven people on this planet to be nominated that many times for that honor. He's one of only five people on this planet to win that award twice. He also received a Peabody Award, and he won the Screen Actors Guild Award for Outstanding Actor in a Drama twice as well. So, what else made House stand apart from the many medical dramas that have come before and after it? 
first, it was a particularly sharply written program, one that thematically shared much more in common with Sherlock Holmes or Columbo than it did ER or Grey's Anatomy. And second, and most relevant to today's conversation, it was a surprisingly introspective bit of television. House was at its best when it grounded stories in philosophy, which it did often. Questions of morality, ethics, how and why we make decisions, faulty assumptions, biases, lies, and half-truths, these were all constant themes of the program. House seemed to constantly dig towards the core of the human experience and all our subsequent flaws. I stumbled upon House accidentally. One of the first episodes of the show I ever watched was from season two, titled The Mistake. Among the host of moral dilemmas and psychological commentaries this episode raised, there's one in particular I'd like to talk about today. I'm going to play a clip from this episode for you in a moment, but first, here's some quick background. In the episode, Dr. Chase, a doctor on House's team, makes a mistake that ultimately leads to the death of his patient. She had originally come in complaining about extreme stomach pain. Chase discovered that she had ulcers and made a rather textbook diagnosis. Soon after, the patient tracks Chase down in the hospital. She tells him that she's still having stomach pain even with this new medication. But Chase was just getting off the phone when she confronted him about it. He appears distracted and he doesn't ask her any additional questions. He just prescribes her something else. Just a few hours after that interaction, the patient is rushed back to the ER with more bleeding ulcers, which resulted in irreparable damage to her organs. This is when House gets involved. And this leads to this scene when House confronts Chase about his failure to correctly diagnose his patient before she took a turn for the worse. A scene which I'll play for you now. She was not fine two hours ago. She mentioned stomach pain? Yeah, so I gave her a stronger... I didn't do an exam. She just came in for follow-up. The results of the pathogen test. Did you listen to her stomach? Check her vitals. Maybe if she'd said something about taking ibuprofen, mentioned the rectal bleeding. Yeah! Why didn't she go to med school like you did? Diarrhea, blood in the stool, these are routine questions. The doctors skip all the time. It was a minor mistake. I couldn't have known Mistakes it Mistakes are as serious as the results they caused. Dr. Chase tells House that it was a minor mistake, a mistake any doctor might have made. And House responds with one of the more thought-provoking lines of the entire series, one of my favorites across eight seasons. He says, mistakes are as serious as the results they cause. Think about that for a second. Do you agree with it? Because in the blink of an eye, House posed a critically important piece of moral decision-making. How you feel about that statement gets to the heart of how we assess the choices we make in our own lives, about how we judge the actions of others, and about our very perception of what is right and wrong. It's a thought experiment that over the course of this episode, I'll stretch across sports, music, and social justice. Because, you see, it's not just a thought experiment. 
It's a paradox. The question at the heart of that episode of House, and of many episodes in the series, has to do with something known as moral luck. In 1976, philosophers Bernard Williams and Thomas Nagel introduced the concept of moral luck in a series of papers. Moral luck describes circumstances in which a person is assigned moral blame or praise for an action, or the consequences of some action, even though the person did not have full control over either the action or its consequences. Let me say that a little differently. If I were to say to you that a person should be held morally responsible only for the actions that they can control, you would probably agree with me. What I just said is known as the control principle, and most everyone agrees with it, as well as if I said to them this subsequent statement that logically hangs underneath it. Two people should not be morally assessed differently if the only differences between them are due to factors beyond their control. It seems logical, right? If two people do the exact same thing, or intend to do the exact same thing, and the only difference between what happens as a result of their action is something totally beyond their control, we shouldn't judge them differently, right? But that's what makes the way we think so strange. Because even though we all agree with everything I just said, the moment I assign real-world examples to those statements, the whole thing breaks down. Here's a popular hypothetical scenario philosophers reference when describing moral luck. Let's say someone had too many drinks at the bar and they make the decision to drive home that night. In fact, let's say that person A, person B, and person C all make that same decision. Person A swerves at a few intersections but makes it home without any additional damage done. Person B swerves at the same intersection moments later, but in that moment, a pedestrian happened to be crossing the street, and they hit the person with their car. And person C's car won't start, so they end up falling asleep in their vehicle at the bar for the rest of the night. In all three cases, the person's intent was the exact same. The only thing that changed in those three scenarios were factors beyond their control. Person B had no control over where a pedestrian happened to be, and person C had no control over whether their car would start. But we, both morally and legally, would not actually judge all three people the same we would place more blame on the person that hit the pedestrian, and we might even shrug off the person that fell asleep in their car. But morally speaking, that really doesn't make sense. They all intended to do the same thing, to drive a vehicle when they were impaired. Let's go back to that episode of House for a moment, the one where Dr. Chase misdiagnoses his patient because he forgets to ask her a question. 
If Chase had failed to ask her that question and she ended up being fine, or if his original diagnosis ended up being right, we wouldn't have thought twice about it. Like he said, doctors forget to ask their patients questions all the time. Why should what would typically be categorized as a very minor mistake be turned into such a big deal? But that line that House says mistakes are as serious as the results they cause, this gets to what philosophers call the problem with moral luck. To House, the only thing that matters is the result, even though that result may be objectively beyond the scope of his doctor's control. But let me add another layer to this. You see, remember that phone call that Dr. Chase took right before his patient found him in the hospital to ask him about her stomach pain? All throughout that episode, we assume that Chase was just negligent, that he was distracted when he was having that conversation with the patient where he didn't ask her a question about her symptoms. Chase even says he was hungover at one point. But at the end of the episode, it's revealed that on that phone call, Chase learned that his father had died. That's why he was distracted. So do you judge Chase differently now that you know that he was distracted because he had just learned this devastating news? You probably do. But try to remove your emotion when you think about this. Chase's patient ultimately dies because he failed to ask her a question. Whether he was hungover from a night of partying or he just learned about the loss of a loved one, the result of his omission was the exact same. Why should he be judged differently? This is the problem with moral luck. It's a paradox. Intuitively, we don't think someone should be judged for factors beyond their control. And yet, legally, morally, even optically, we often do just that. So remember that line I played for you at the beginning of the episode, the one where House says, I'm sure this goes against everything you've been taught, but right and wrong do exist. Just because you don't know what the right answer is, maybe there's even no way you could know what the right answer is, doesn't make your answer right or even okay. It's much simpler than that. It's just plain wrong. We all tend to equate responsibility with action. House's commentary here is that we are wrong to do so. House rejects the control principle, the idea that we're only responsible for what we can control. Do you agree with House's assertion? If you're a doctor and you have two choices to save a patient's life, both equally uncertain, should you be blamed if you choose wrong? And if you don't think you should be, why do we often praise someone when they choose right? Let me take you out of these bleak life-and-death medical hypotheticals. Because while perhaps not dealing too deeply in morality, I see these inequities of responsibility and action play out all the time. Let's start with sports. Saints go for it. Kamara down the sideline. What a throw. Another touchdown. We are in love with the quarterback position. Many experts view it as the most important singular position, not just in the game of football, but of any major team sport. 
Some teams spend 15 to 20% of their total annual salary cap on this one position alone. Of the top 20 highest paid NFL players of all time, 16 of them are quarterbacks. Heck, we assign win-loss records to them, even though they aren't on the field for half the game. But think about this. In 2019, the average distance in the air a completed pass traveled from a quarterback to a receiver was less than six yards from the line of scrimmage. The top 20 receivers that led the league in receiving yards last year had, on average, anywhere from a quarter to nearly half of their total yards come from what they did after they caught the ball. So, quarterback A throws a ball six yards, and that receiver fails to break a tackle or trips on his own two feet. Quarterback A gets six passing yards on the play. Quarterback B makes the same six-yard pass, but their receiver breaks three tackles and outruns everyone for an 80-yard touchdown. And quarterback B gets credit for 80 passing yards and a touchdown? In truth, both actions were equal. Both passes were identical. Everything that happened after that moment was beyond the quarterback's control. It's an example of how we over-assign responsibility with action. It underscores the problem with moral luck. Intuitively, we know this doesn't make sense, but since 2012, no other position but quarterback has won the NFL's most coveted yearly achievement award, the most valuable player. Why are we assigning so much praise or blame to them? Let me throw another one at you. Let's head to business. One day, you're in your office and this guy who you don't know comes in and starts cleaning out the office next to you. When you ask him about it, he tells you he was just hired and he works here now. You start seeing him in meetings, he even ends up leading a few projects you're on. Months later, you find out that that person was not a hired employee. He had snuck into the building and convinced everyone that he was part of the company. How do you feel? How would you judge him, morally and legally? What actions would you take? Now, what if I told you that Steven Spielberg got his start at Universal Studios by sneaking onto the studio lot, clearing out an office, claiming he worked there, and subsequently being assigned to lead film projects? Both are the same actions, but do we judge Spielberg's as an example of plucky persistence to follow your dream at all costs, and the other as creepy, law-breaking, perhaps even sociopathic? By the way, I should mention that Spielberg has told that exact story of how he got his start, but it has been somewhat discredited. Still, it plays out in similar variations all the time in the real world. Have you ever sat in a meeting with some senior executive who told you that she got to where she got to by cold calling or emailing some director relentlessly until they finally gave in and took a shot on her? Again, you'll probably label that persistent. But if you get pelted by emails from some job candidate inquiring about an open position every week or every day, well, you probably call that annoying.
We don't just judge actions. We judge their consequences, even when those consequences may be well outside of the control of that action. In fact, often it seems like we start by judging the consequence and then assign motive, intent, or moral judgment to the action that preceded it. So let me show you how only paying attention to the resulting consequences can lead us to wildly different interpretations of someone's actions. Let me tell you a story about Sam Smith. English singer Sam Smith burst onto mainstream consciousness in 2014 with In the Lonely Hour, an album that rocketed to number two on the Billboard Hot 100. It went platinum in the United States, selling more than one million copies and was one of the best-selling albums of the year. In fact, Sam Smith was the only artist to sell more than one million copies of an album in both the United States and United Kingdom in 2014. The album was headlined by a song titled Stay With Me, a gospel-inspired ballad written in association with James Napier and William Phillips. Here's a clip from its iconic chorus. Oh, won't you stay with me? Cause you're That song ultimately won the Grammy Award for Song of the Year in 2015. It was everywhere that year. It's been used in many television shows and movies since, and it remains Smith's most successful single. But let me ask you, especially those of you with a passion for classic rock, did the chorus of that song sound familiar? That was Tom Petty's I Won't Back Down from his 1989 multi-platinum album, Full Moon Fever. It was one of Petty's most popular and commercially successful songs. In January of 2015, it was revealed that Tom Petty's representatives had gotten in contact with Sam Smith's team about the similarities between the two songs. Similarities was putting it mildly. The passages were almost identical, save for a few minor pitch and tempo changes. Even the cadence of the lyrics were almost the same. Here, let me play you one of the many clips that users posted to YouTube that overlapped the two songs. In an article in the Rolling Stone, Smith's representative said that it was a complete coincidence. That the English-born Smith had never even heard of the song from the US-born Petty. The rep would go on to say that once Smith's team heard the song, they immediately acknowledged the similarities and agreed to quickly settle the copyright dispute. 
Tom Petty and Jeff Lynne, the songwriters behind I Won't Back Down, received credit on Stay With Me as well as a percentage of the song's royalties. On his website, Petty would say, quote, Let me say, I have never had any hard feelings toward Sam. All my years of songwriting have shown me these things can happen. Most times you catch it before it gets out the studio door, but in this case, it got by. A musical accident, no more, no less." End quote. And that was that, a harmless accident. Heck, even if Smith had heard Petty's song before, I don't think anyone would have passed blame. Because anyone in a creative field knows that influence isn't a straight line. We often don't realize that some of what we say or do or create, something we truly believe was original, might have been inspired or even inadvertently lifted from other works we heard or saw before. But let me ask you this. What if that story didn't end that way? What if it was revealed that Sam Smith had purposefully ripped off Tom Petty's song, a song that proved to be Smith's breakthrough track that launched Smith into musical superstardom? Would we judge Sam Smith differently? Of course we would. We'd call Smith a thief or a plagiarist. But because Smith didn't have knowledge of Tom Petty's song, we judge this situation differently. The consequence, a popular song that sounded nearly identical to another musician's popular song, was the same, regardless of whether Sam Smith did it on purpose or not. But we intuitively believe that if you didn't do it on purpose, you shouldn't be blamed for it. And that makes total sense. Of course we shouldn't blame Sam Smith for this musical accident. But that's what's so perplexing about how we form judgments. If we're able to separate the consequence from the moral action in this instance, why can't we always do it? You see, there's a ton of inconsistency in how we assign blame or praise to someone's actions. Often, we go right to the consequence. Think back to House's remark, mistakes are as serious as the results they cause. A mistake that might lead to nothing of consequence will be judged differently from the same mistake that leads to something of great consequence. This explains why we assign more blame to the drunk driver that hits a pedestrian. It's why there are different charges in our legal system for murder and attempted murder. It's even why we assign quarterbacks more praise or blame than they actually deserve. But here comes the contradiction. Even though we judge two people whose moral actions were identical differently depending on the consequence of those actions, we don't extend the same logic when someone's moral actions were different, but they led to the same consequence. Think back again to the episode of House. Once we discovered that Dr. Chase was distracted because he had just learned about the death of his father, we didn't judge him as harshly, even though he made the same mistake of failing to ask his patient a routine medical question regardless of whether he was distracted by the loss of a loved one or because he went out drinking the night before. Or think back to the case of Sam Smith. 
We judge Smith differently because they didn't know about Tom Petty's song, even though direct and intentional plagiarism of that song would have led to, ultimately, the same consequence. We're way too focused on the consequence when we pass judgment on someone's action. Even though we say that we only hold people responsible for the actions they can control. Sometimes we do, and sometimes we don't. This contradiction is important to spotlight because we often make life-changing judgments and generalizations based on these optics. From the legal system to corporate America, from who gets into the Hall of Fame to who you hold a grudge against for the rest of your life. We're terribly inconsistent in how we assign blame and praise, and how we weight consequences and the moral actions that preceded those consequences. So let me take this one final step further. Because all of this, this problem of moral luck, the inconsistencies in how we judge action, I think we can directly apply it to what's happening today in America. And if we don't bring attention to it now, we'll fail to adequately respond to what could be the most significant opportunity we'll have to fight for social justice in our lifetime. Today, all of these major institutions, from entertainment conglomerates to big tech, from academia to the private sector, and everywhere in between, they're all speaking out in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. Over the course of the past few weeks, you've probably seen companies make statements about the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion, pledging dollars to fight for social justice issues or making changes to brand names with racist origins. And for the most part, we've applauded them for it. We've seen the consequence, the words they say, the dollars they pledge, the changes they vow to make and we don't really seem to care about the moral action behind it. But shouldn't the why behind it matter? Because what if all of these changes and statements that are being made, what if they're just performative? What if this is just a company jumping in so they can be part of the conversation? What if they're just jumping in for optics? Look, the moral action behind these consequences matters. Because if the reason behind it is performative, if it's an exercise in branding and not in social justice, none of what you're reading or hearing about is going to stick. Once the Black Lives Matter movement fades out of the national spotlight, companies will just move on to the next thing. Why are we applauding companies for making statements? Should we even be applauding them for pledging money? Maybe, but shouldn't we applaud them more for taking action, for reviewing hiring practices, or studying issues of overt and implicit bias within their organizations? For ensuring diversity, equity, and inclusion permeates across their workforce all the way to the top of their leadership boards. This is why this inconsistency in how we judge consequences matters so much. Because in this instance, the right thing done for the wrong reason will not lead to a result that makes long-term impact. On the surface, if you think results are all that matter, you might think it's semantics. But if you go deeper, 
if you judge the moral action, if you judge what these entities can control, and don't just give them credit for the consequence, you may find that we still have a long way to go to make impactful, lasting change. Gregory House won't win any awards for Motivational Speaker of the Year. And his cynicism, his disinterest in people's feelings, none of that made him particularly popular among his peers. But what made House a better doctor than virtually all of his colleagues was his ability to see through the contradictions, the half-truths, and the faulty assumptions that guide how most of us make decisions every day. He was willing to be proven wrong, and this often led him to the right answer. I don't think House gives us much of an applicable guide map for how we should go about living our lives, but he does raise a ton of important philosophical questions spanning morality, perception, and how we judge right and wrong. I often found myself thinking about episodes of House days after watching them, making new connections both within the show and in everyday life. Sure, he could have used a little more tact, but House cut through our mental contradictions, the little games we play to rationalize and explain our world. He laid that all bare and made us question how we came to the conclusions we did. Yes, results matter. Yes, sometimes the consequence of an action holds greater weight than the action itself. But if we don't stop and think about the inconsistencies in how we pass judgment, if we don't contemplate the problem with moral luck, we'll continue to assign more blame and more praise to people and to institutions than they actually deserve. Not every moral judgment has to do with life and death, but that doesn't mean each one doesn't carry its own importance. Have you ever judged someone differently for factors beyond their control? Have you ever assigned undue credit or blame to someone based solely on the consequence without considering the underlying action or moral intent? Have you felt guilt or regret for something you did that, upon consideration, was based on factors you couldn't have possibly predicted or controlled? Sometimes people deserve a second chance. Sometimes organizations should be held more or less accountable, not for what they do, but for why they do it. But none of that can be brought into the spotlight without, well, a house moment. A moment where someone or something cuts through our contradictory thoughts and reveals something for what it is. After all, in the immortal words of Dr. House, if you're not willing to look stupid, nothing great is ever going to happen to you. This is David Giardino. Thanks for listening. I have a favor to ask of you this week. If you know someone that would be interested in this podcast or my podcast series, I'd really appreciate it if you would consider sharing it. Referrals are vital to new podcasts, and one small action can make a big difference. And if you've been enjoying it, rating it, or leaving a review if your podcast app allows you, would be a big help. Thanks.